Hello and welcome to EIP Talks, a podcast focusing on patent news, trends and insights. I'm Joshua Rosenberg, I'm a legal commentator and EIP have asked me to host this episode of EIP Talks. I'm joined by Gary Moss, the firm's head of litigation. Gary qualified as a solicitor in 1977 and he's been a partner at EIP for more than 10 years now. Gary, we met here in London last summer when we recorded the first episode of EIP Talks. I was trying to get my head round standard essential patents, and you very kindly began the podcast by taking me through acronyms like SEPs and FRAND, and for anyone who's new to all of this, I strongly recommend you listen back to episode one. In today's episode of EIP Talks, we're going to discuss the consultation launched by the UK Intellectual Property Office at the end of last year. Does the standard essential patent system strike the right balance between inventors and manufacturers, between patentees and licensees? Or is government intervention now required? That's what ministers want to know. Gary, what do you think prompted the government to launch this consultation? Did it come out of the blue? Well, it did come out of the blue, really, but it, actually it happened very contemporaneously with a consultation launched by the European Union and also one launched by the Department of Justice in the United States, all on the similar theme. And whether there's been some coordination behind the scenes, obviously one can speculate. But I think to some extent it was a bit of a surprise that these came out just at this time. And a surprise, I suppose, to to your clients, you act mainly for inventors and the people who buy patents from them. We act for SEP holders. Uh, Primarily, the firm acts for people who have acquired them from some of the originators who originally filed them. But we're very much on the SEP holder side, if you like. And obviously, a lot of what I say may come from that view. On the other side, of course, you've got the implementers, the people who either manufacture the phones or, in reality, subcontract the manufacturing to other companies. Uh, These are the people who effectively make and sell the phones or the base stations that we're talking about. Do you think that these people have been lobbying the government for change? Do you think they're perhaps behind this uh, consultation by the Intellectual Property Office? I do think that to some extent. I've certainly seen... Uh, some reference to companies on the implementer side putting forward uh, suggestions to the government that perhaps the way that SEPs are dealt with by the standard setting organisations, sometimes called standard development organisation, SSOs or SDOs, the way that the uh, their processes work, and also some concern about some of the judgments that have come out, and in particular the Unwired Planet against Huawei judgment, which you and I discussed at length last time. This was a case that you won on behalf of of the inventors and the people who bought the patents from them? Yes, when you say we won, what happened in that case was that the court established, or the Supreme Court established, uh, that when determining whether or not a licence was franned, the court or the UK court could take into account the fact that the owner had offered a global licence and if the global had offered a global licence, then that was considered to be FRAND, and the SEP owner had complied with its FRAND obligations. And just remind me what FRAND stands for? FRAND is fair, reasonable and non-discriminatory. 
And the context of that, why it was important, just to recap, was that Huawei were arguing that they should only be obliged to take a UK license or a license to the UK patents. And my client said, no, if you want a FRAND license, you had to take a license to the whole portfolio throughout the world. And the reason that was, say, controversial is that it was suggested that what effectively the court was doing was enforcing non-UK patents. And again, you mentioned the the organisations that set technical standards for communications products obviously have to comply with them. If you're an implementer, you have to use technology that's protected by patents, and and that's the the standard essential patents accepts that we've been talking about. That is correct. What happens is that the standard-setting organisation, and we talk about it primarily in the context of telecommunications, but there's lots of standards for uh, different types of technology. And what happens is that the standard-setting organisation decides what the standard is going to be, and in doing so, it will incorporate technology put forward by the various people that are making uh, proposals to it. And the consequence of that is if the patent is essential to the standard, you can't practice the standard without infringing the patent. You told me just now that FRAN stands for fair, reasonable and non-discriminatory, but there's a trade association based in Brussels called the Fair Standards Alliance. Its members are concerned that unfair and unreasonable SEP licensing practices pose a significant risk to the innovation ecosystem. They create barriers to entry for new market players. They threaten to stifle the full potential for economic growth across across major industry sectors and they ultimately harm consumer choice. I see you smiling at this. I don't think you're necessarily persuaded by that. Well, it wasn't that I was persuaded, but what you just said, Joshua, needs uh, quite a bit of unpacking. So let's start. The Fair Standards Organisation is a collection of implementers. So you'd have a number of large telecommunications companies in there. You'd have uh, a lot of motor manufacturers in there, and we'll come back to why they are there. You'll have companies like Google in there. So they're definitely on the... I'm using the patents and I want to be able to do so on fair terms. And let's keep it neutral like that. So that is the Fair Standards Organisation or the Fair Standards Alliance. They have put forward concerns as to the fact that standards operate. It might cut down consumer choice, might have an effect on competition and is generally, quotes a bad thing. What one has to understand, I think, in this context is that Obviously, they have a commercial interest in making sure that they get access to the standards uh, without having to overpay. I won't say as cheaply as possible, let's say without having to overpay. And therefore, there is an idea of the concept of hold-up, where somebody can use their standard essential patent in order to screw more than they should be entitled to out of the implementer. And this is something which is very frequently argued on the implementer side that they have the potential to be, to be held up. But on the other side? Well, I would say that um, hold up in the context of standards. I mean, you can read the economic literature, you can read the theoretical literature, and it is very common to say, oh, there's the prospect of hold up. But actually, the way it works, I would say that that is a bit of a chimera. And very rarely does hold up actually happen. And certainly in some of the organisations that I've mentioned that are part of the Fair Standards Alliance, one has difficulty in seeing how you can think that um, an organisation such as that can be really held up 
And from your point of view, your clients accuse the implementers of holding out, which is completely different. Well, it is completely different. And any case that uh, goes to court these days and has got Fran as its topic always has accusations of hold up and hold out. Now, on the SEP holder side, as I've said, they would say that hold up might be there in theory, but in practice, because of the way the system works, it doesn't happen. I can explain why I think it doesn't happen, or very rarely happens, I should say. Um, on the holdout side, the SEP holder community would argue that holdout does happen and frequently happens. And that all comes down to the way in which SEPs can be enforced in the light of the undertakings given to the relevant standard-setting organisations. And this is the implementers uh, holding out, taking advantage of the patent, creating the product while refusing to pay what your clients would say is a fair price for it, uh, leaving your clients to drop the price or go to court. Correct. One of the slightly unusual things about SEPs is that the implementer does not actually need the patent. And when I say need, I mean physically need the patent, because all the information that the implementer requires is actually contained in the standard itself. So that tells the implementer what it needs to do um, and how it needs to manufacture its products in order to comply with the standard. Having to pay a royalty on that, leaving aside the question of what's fair, but to the implementer, having to pay a royalty on that is a reduction of their profits. And obviously they would like to avoid that if possible. Now, in order for an SEP holder to recover their royalty, they first have to approach the implementer and say, we've got these patents, we think you should license them. And it's open to the implementer to say, well, I don't think you have got patents which either are valid or which read onto the standard, and we should argue about this in court. Uh, and that can take many, many years. And because of the financial clout of some of the entities that I've previously mentioned, the big telecommunications companies, the big motor manufacturing companies, the big Silicon Valley companies, they've got a lot of financial muscle and therefore they can afford to um, avoid having to sign licenses for a long time. And that's the concept of holdout. I've mentioned the Fair Standards Alliance already. And as I recall, they tried to intervene in your case, the case we've been talking about, the Unwired Planet case. They said uh, that if the Court of Appeal ruling was upheld by the UK Supreme Court, it would have significant adverse consequences for business, innovation would be reduced, companies might be deterred from distributing their products in the UK. What did you make of that? Well, it was very much a lobbying exercise, we thought, and we did, in fact, object to the Fair Standards Alliance having the right to intervene. Interestingly, though, Apple also applied to intervene. That may be because between the petition going into the Supreme Court seeking permission to appeal and the Supreme Court making a determination, Optus commenced action against Apple, and therefore Apple decided that it had an interest, if you like, a commercial interest, and therefore it applied to intervene and it was allowed to do so by the Supreme Court. And it did, in fact, make written submissions. It wasn't allowed to make oral submissions to the Supreme Court. I should also say, in, um, by way of balance, that two entities also intervened on the side of Unwired Planet. 
and that was Qualcomm, who manufacture a lot of the chips that go into the handsets, and Ericsson, who obviously had have an interest on the SEP holder side. Uh, you mentioned the Optus against Apple case. Where have we got to on that? Uh, because uh, it suggested that um, it would be better for courts to just grant injunctions rather than actually trying to, to set FRAND terms. Uh, where have we got to as a result of that case? When you say grant injunctions, the German courts tend to do that. So the German court will not determine what is a FRAND licence in the sense of saying we think X is FRAND. What the German court does is it looks at the offers made by each party and it becomes a bit of a, a binary decision there. If the patentee can satisfy the German court that it's made a proper FRAND offer and the implementer has unreasonably refused, then the German court will say, OK, fine, we're going to grant you, the SEP holder, an injunction. Conversely, if the German court decides that what was offered by the SEP holder was either not FRAND or that the implementer has come back with a counter-offer which looks reasonable and negotiations should have continued, it may refuse the injunction. So it becomes a bit of a... You know, if you like a baseball negotiation, as they say, where it's binary, yes or no. It's quite rough and ready. I mean, is that a better way forward than actually trying to work out what a fair price is? I'm not sure the German court would say it's rough and ready. I'd be keen on saying it's rough and ready. But it is another approach. But what it does mean is that if you're the SEP holder, you have to be pretty sure that you've got your ducks in a row before you start proceedings there. And that may tend to make you over-negotiate or lower your price so as to be sure. What the UK court does is that it will look at what both parties have done. But then if it decides that neither party has offered what it thinks is FRAND, it will say, well, you've offered X and you've offered Y, but I think that the actual answer is Z. And therefore say that the FRAND terms that the SEP holder has to offer um, RZ. After the Supreme Court ruled in favour of your clients, the Fair Standards Alliance uh, put out a statement. They repeated their concerns. They said it's troubling that an SEP holder can use a single patent in a single jurisdiction to force a potential licensee to enter into a worldwide SEP licence. Companies shouldn't be forced to take a licence uh, to SEPs that they don't need or don't infringe? Well, again, this, this statement needs a lot of unpacking and you have to understand what lies behind this. What the Fair Standard Alliance and its members would like is that in order to enforce your portfolio, you'd have to go and enforce your patents on a country-by-country basis. And... To be honest, that would be beyond the resources of all but the very largest company. I mean, in the UK, in the Optus and Apple case, we had four patents out of a total portfolio of uh, 130. So we asked the court to determine four, four families of patents. Now, that has taken the best part of 
three years. The last trial is taking place at the moment. We started the action in February 2019, and here we are, January 2022, and we're having the fourth of the technical trials. Imagine multiplying that so you'd have to do that in, say, Germany, France, China, the United States, etc. And then you would be faced with an enormous amount of litigation. And it would be beyond the resources, not just financial resources, but actually the personnel resources running these cases takes a lot of time and effort. And a lot of companies just do not have the resources for that. The implementers must understand that. Or or do you think they're deliberately trying to make it just so much more difficult for your side to actually resolve cases? Yes. (laughs) In In a word, yes. One of the things that is always very interesting in this area, Joshua, is that, say, the Fair Standards Alliance and its members like to promulgate the theory that this is all terribly unfair and that being held up and this is having an effect on innovation and development and technological uh, forwarding, etc. But the interesting thing is, if you wanted to go and buy a mobile telephone today, you could walk down the high street and buy a mobile telephone from any manufacturer you can imagine. In fact, what is interesting in the field of mobile telecommunications, at the moment, the number of manufacturers you've got has come down to about seven. Uh, Five of them are currently located in China, plus you have Apple and Samsung, and they account for something like 85 to 90% of the mobile telephones that are sold in this country. So there's been a very big concentration of manufacturing and distribution of mobile telephones on that side. Now, they've managed to do that, despite the fact that the standards uh, system has been operating since at least the year 2000. And if you think about how far mobile telecommunications has come in those years and the handsets that you now carry around with you and compare them to the bricks that you and I probably remember because we're old enough that you had in the late 1990s, the development has been astonishing, and that's all taken place under standardisation. And I cannot think of one person that's ever been stopped from manufacturing a mobile telephone because of concerns about patents and standards and SEPs. Well, how do you square that with the report from the Telecoms Diversification Task Force commissioned by the government last year, which said that intellectual property and standard essential patents have potential to serve as considerable barriers to diversification as technology suppliers staunchly protect their investment and designs? Well, this is one of the things, actually, that is quite interesting, because when they say technology suppliers... Uh, which you say staunchly protect their investment and design. In the context of SEPs, standard essential patents, people aren't protecting their designs in the sense of preventing others from using them, because that's the whole point about a standard essential patent. If you want your technology to be incorporated into standard and you put forward a proposal that's then if, um, taken up by the standard setting organisation, The quid pro quo to that is that you say you have to license it on FRAN terms and licenses are available to those who wish to work the invention. What is the potential uh, more serious, I would say, 
possibility of cutting down access is if people don't have standard essential patents, but instead keep them as implementation patents. I mean, there was a famous case um, recently, not recently, but a few years ago, on uh, Apple's swipe and unlock facility on its phone. Now, that wasn't a standard essential patent, but somebody was trying to protect that and prevent others from using it. So to some extent, having, well, I'd say to a large extent, having SEPs actually fosters development. And that's what happened. I mean, you again, I can remember the time when if you wanted to go abroad and use your mobile telephone, you had to have a special arrangement with your uh, network operator and they had to have a corresponding arrangement with the network operator overseas and you had to do all sorts of funny things with your telephone and normally it didn't work etc etc these days you go to the remotest parts of the UK, uh, the world get off the plane turn on your phone and if it doesn't connect within two minutes you start getting frustrated let's talk a bit more about what the government is thinking of what the uh, inquiry launched by the intellectual property office may be going for. I mean, the government says, in pretty neutral terms, it would like to better understand how effective or problematic the SEPs ecosystem is and whether the current approach promotes or hinders innovation. The government therefore seeks views on the broad questions of how the SEPs ecosystem supports competition and innovation and what interventions could help consumers. That sounds pretty fair, doesn't it? It does sound pretty fair, yes, when you say it like that. (laughs) (laughs) But you're smiling again. (laughs) Well, you, you always wonder what's really un, beneath it. Um, as I say, there is, I would say it's a myth promulgated that standard and standard setting organisations restrict competition. I would say actually it's exactly the opposite, as I've demonstrated. I think what restricts competition arguably is more is the concentration that has come about um, as to the mobile manufacturers into very few hands. And as I've said, you know, five of the main manufacturers of mobile telephones are now based in China. Uh, you only have one uh, based in Korea, Samsung, and then you have Apple, which obviously um, is based in the US, but is a worldwide company. But even then, most of its mo- mobile telephones are manufactured in China. So what are the risks then? What if the uh, implementers, the manufacturers, uh, get what they want from this review and the others going on in other parts of the world? Uh, What do you see the future as being if the governments are persuaded um, against the views and wishes of of the people that you normally represent? Okay. well, I've, in the course of my litigation cases recently, I've spoken to experts or people who are very expert in licensing uh, SEPs. Um, Again, it's on the side of the SEP holders, but they have given evidence, and I think the court accepted uh, in trial F um, on the Optus and Apple case, that uh, there is a balance here and there is a risk of a very serious risk of holdout. And many of the people I've spoken to have said that, in fact, before the Unwired Planet case, the balance was tipped very much in favour of the implementers because of the uh, possibility of getting involved in litigation, having to spend lots of money in order to prove one's portfolio. Uh, I'm fearing uh, a return to that world, frankly. And what would that mean for consumers? Higher prices? 
I'm not sure it would mean higher prices for consumers. I'm not sure that this is going to affect consumers either way. And I'll, I'll explain it. What I think it will mean is that the innovators, the people that really do contribute to the innovation of the standards, will become less reluctant to spend as much money as they currently do on taking part in the standards setting regime and in the innovation. I mean, again, you have to look at this, but certainly traditionally, if you go back to 4G, you'll find that the main innovators there were companies like Qualcomm, Ericsson, Nokia, Interdigital and companies like that. And actually, uh, the current manufacturers paid very little part in the uh, development of 4G. They're now paying much bigger part in 5G, although query whether it's a sort of gold rush and everybody's filing patents hand over fist in order to get themselves a share of the licensing regime. And there's a question mark as to how how much quality there is in those patents. But what I, I fear is that some of the people that have traditionally innovated may say that well, I don't think they'll withdraw altogether, but they may say that the game is just not worth the candle if they cannot recoup their investments. So there won't be development in, say, mobile phones. But on the other hand, you know, all our mobile phones work pretty well at the moment. Um, you know, do we really need them to be developed further? Do we need these these inventors to be working out new ways of making a phone call or getting on the Internet? Well, that's a philosophical question that I'm, as a lawyer, I don't think I'm uh, able to answer. But... If you look at the difference, it becomes ubiquitous once it becomes available. But if you look what you could do with 2G, you could probably send text messages and the odd photograph and then look what happened with 3G and then go to 4G. And now we've got 5G where you can stream in real time and what have you. And it's supposed to be about 100 times faster than 4G. Who knows? I don't know what 6G will bring. We've spoken about patent holders engaging in holding up, uh, uh, refusing to grant a licence unless the manufacturer pays more. But if they do that, are they at risk from US antitrust laws? Um, uh, Let me read you a statement by Apple, which is on its website. It says, Despite over a decade of debate, the marketplace continues to suffer from a lack of consistent adherence to voluntarily accepted, fair, reasonable and non-discriminatory licensing principles for standard essential patents, particularly in the cellular standards area. Do you agree with that? No, I don't. I mean, I think what that is aiming at is Apple's view of what is fair, reasonable and non-discriminatory. Um, and they may, that may not comply with what uh, certainly the, implement, the, sorry, the SEP holders think is fair, reasonable and non-discriminatory. And this is one of the areas of argument, of course, because fair and reasonable are not precise terms. And it comes down to, um, at the end of the day, what the courts determine is fair and reasonable. Let me read you another statement from Apple. SEP owners should identify each SEP to be licensed and should prove with specificity why each SEP is actually essentially infringed and not otherwise invalid, exhausted, licensed or unenforceable. Okay. Again, that needs a lot of unpacking. What is at the bottom of that is that implementers would like SEP holders to have to prove their patents in court. Now, one of the 
things about patents and what makes it so fascinating is that nobody can say, I have a patent and it's definitely valid um, because you have something called worldwide novelty and there may be a piece of prior art lurking around which nobody has actually looked at but which is available, could be on the shelf somewhere or hidden away in some internet website or something like that. That would be invalidating prior art. So you can always find something that raises an argument that the patent under consideration is not valid. And this is what implementers frequently try to do. They try to argue that although you may have a portfolio of 50, 60 patent families, they would say, well, they're not valid and you've got to prove them to me. Now, when you have a negotiation between two parties, the SEP holder and the implementer, if the implementer is of any size, I can assure you that the first part of those license negotiations will be establishing the quality of the patent portfolio. And you may not come to a conclusion that all the patents in the portfolio are valid, but they will come to some sort of consensus as to the merits of the portfolio or otherwise. That's if they're willing licensors and willing licensees. And the other thing that Apple say is that SEP owners should prove the value of each alleged invention and they don't like bundling of licenses. They say that licensees shouldn't be forced to take groups of licenses and they should be able to choose whether to license individual um, select groups of or entire portfolios and, and so on. I mean, this is the same thing, presumably. It's the same thing. It's raising under the guise of being reasonable. And of course, you know, you shouldn't be able to foist um, products onto people that don't want them. But these are people that have said that they want to implement the standard. And I have a series of patents which are relevant to the standard. And I don't want to license them one by one. License them one by one is completely inefficient, um, becomes very difficult to police. And it means that I'd have to have armies of licensing executives doing licenses on a one-by-one basis. Nobody does that in the real world. When you have willing licensors and willing licensees, they will come along and they say, I've got my portfolio of patent and the licensee will say, uh, OK, fine, let's have a look at it. And then come to a conclusion as to whether or not it merits being licensed. And if it does they'll agree a license for it. I mean, this doesn't just happen in, SE, in the area of SEPs, say in the area of pharmaceuticals. There's no, usually there's not just one patent that's protecting a pharmaceutical. Usually a pharmaceutical company will have a suite of patents. And if they want to out-license it, uh, they will go to the potential licensee and say, here's my suite of patents. Do you want them? And the licensee will either say yes or no. It won't say, well, I'll take this one and this one, but not those. Usually it's done on a portfolio basis. And there's a reason for that, because both sides don't want to be arguing subsequently as to whether or not they've got all the rights that they need. I think you mentioned motor manufacturers earlier. And and let's talk about the royalty base. I mean, a motor car has all sorts of uh, inventions in it, all sorts of patents. So how do you calculate the price that is paid, the royalty that's paid for the patent, you, you, you wouldn't calculate it on the, the value of the entire car, would you? No, you wouldn't calculate it on the value of the entire car. You, you often have these discussions, um, it, not in the context of SEPs, but say you've got a new patent for a spark plug. 
um, that somehow makes the engine more efficient. You wouldn't necessarily say that the license fee should be based on the value of the car. How much it would be based on would be a matter for uh, negotiation or determination by the court. I previously acted on a case which where the invention related to a nozzle on a paint spray gun and the nozzle may have sold for £20. But that was important because the spray pattern which you could get out of the paint spray gun by reason of this nozzle gave it a much more efficient and beneficial result. So the question then became, what was the royalty? Was it the royalty on the nozzle or was it the royalty on the paint spray gun? Apple say it should be based on the smallest saleable unit that uses the invention, nothing bigger than the baseband chip. OK, the actual term, for I'll give you another uh, an acronym, is SSPPU, which is Smallest Saleable Patent Practicing Unit. And this has been promulgated by Apple, amongst others, for quite some time. And the theory is that it is a baseband chip which actually does the work which makes the handset comply with the standard. Now, you can take out the chip and put in another chip. But actually, the standard doesn't read onto chips. It reads onto a handset. The standard is divided up so that one, F, one area is the handset and the other area is the baseband chip. You cannot implement a standard just by a baseband chip. It is the handset that implements the standard. All the chip is doing is just changing the way the signals are processed. Can we step back a bit? Because uh, you've been talking about the detail and, and clearly, you know, anything involving business involves negotiations and there are two sides and they have different perspectives and so on. But is there a better way to handle what we've been talking about so far? Is there a better way to arrange... Clearly, the intention of Frand was fair, reasonable uh, payment for uh, the intellectual work involved in an invention. Uh, and you need both sides. You need the inventors and you need the manufacturers. Is there a better way of resolving how much people get paid for their creative intellectual effort in, in, in thinking up the things that we all use? Well, there is a better way if the parties were willing to do it, or if both sides were willing to do it. And many people have suggested this, and recently Lord Justice Arnold, one of the Court of Appeal judges who's done a lot of SEP-related work, also suggested this in an address, and that would be to have some form of compulsory arbitration system where these um, issues could be resolved. But at the moment, the parties don't seem to be able to come together or the sides don't seem to be able to come together to agree some form of arbitration system. One of the problems we've got at the moment is, of course, that people rush off to their favourite courts. And this is not peculiar to SEPs, but when you start proceedings, you're always going to start proceedings, if you can, in the court which you think gives you the most advantage. You know, you want to play home at home rather than playing away, uh, putting it crudely. Um, so you have people going off to the UK court, some going off to the German court. Now a lot of companies, implementing implementation companies, are uh, invoking the jurisdiction of the Chinese courts, uh, which traditionally have awarded royalties at a much lower level. 
Um, and all this caused multi-jurisdictional litigation. And I'm not going to say that the courts are giving inconsistent judgments, but they may not all be on the same track exactly. So if you had some form of arbitration system in which it was recognised that if you cannot agree a FRAN terms or for terms of a FRAN licence, either party could refer it to arbitration and the arbitration was binding, then life would be, uh, well, I'd say life would be a lot simpler. I'm not sure that the lawyers would earn so much money, but that may be a good thing, some people might say. But certainly it would mean that um, there might be an element of consistency. But you can't force parties to go to arbitration, or can you? No, you can't. And very often in SEP litigation, you will see that one side or another has proposed arbitration and the other side has declined to take up that offer. And that may be for various reasons. It may not like the terms of the arbitration being put forward. Frequently, one suspects it's because it prefers to take its chance in litigation with all the um, delays and machinations and pressures that brings rather than arbitration. But um, you can't force somebody to arbitrate. In the United States, I think you do have mediation, compulsory mediation sometimes, or the court will order a a mediation. Uh, And I've seen that happen in some SEP litigation. But again, as you know, you can mediate, but if one party does not want to agree a settlement then you're not going to achieve anything. And mediation tends to favour the stronger party, I suppose, in practice, or the one that has less to lose. Is that fair? (laughs) Well, I'm not sure it favours the stronger party, but certainly the party that doesn't want to settle. I mean, a mediation, as its name implies, means that the parties have to come into an agreement, as opposed to an arbitration where the arbitration panel will say, no, this is the decision and this is binding on you. So mediation involves an element of an agreement and it's simple for somebody to go to mediation and just refuse all offers made. But we've got this consultation launched by the Intellectual Property Office. You're going to make representations. You may well uh, put forward this idea of arbitration. Is there anything that can be done by legislation or is there anything that can be done by the courts to move parties towards this form of arbitration Uh, which might help resolve cases more simply? Well, I suppose the UK government could pass a law which requires people to arbitrate these issues. But, of course, that presupposes that the action is begun in the UK, um, and that may not happen. It may be begun in in, in another jurisdiction. It really needs a standard-setting organisations to put that into their rules and say that if the parties can't agree, you know, the, the, the SEP holder has to agree that it'll offer FRAN terms and the SEP holder has to agree that if they can't agree FRAN terms, then it needs to go to arbitration. But the other side of that is that it needs to impose on the implementers the obligation also to accept FRAN arbitration. And the difficulty is that the, S, the standard-setting organisation cannot control what the implementers do. Now, I suppose if it was a rule in one of the SSO's um, IP policies that these had to be decided by arbitration and an implementer refused to go to that arbitration, I so a UK court could say, well, look, you know, you had your choice. 
um, we're going to grant an injunction for you because you should have gone to the arbitration as put forward by the SSO. But at the moment, that doesn't happen. But it could work. It might work. It, it might work. But the problem is that you, in, in the SSO, in the standard-setting organisations, you have both sides of the argument. Implementers are members of the standard-setting organisation and SEP holders are members of the standard-setting organisation. And the leading standard-setting organisation in this uh, context is Etsy. And um, Etsy operates by consensus. And it can't reach consensus on this issue. And it's because both sides sides have their own agenda, if you like. And again, just looking from uh, above and and, and taking the broad picture, is there a better way of calculating the amount of royalties that uh, should be paid uh, for an invention, something rather um, broader than, than, than simply you know, counting up the patents and working out which patents are essential and working out which are uh, necessary and, 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 and looking into it in this fine detail? Well, again, there's, there's several problems in this. First of all, you talk about counting the patents. One of the issues that is a recognised issue um, is that when parties make declarations of essentiality, the standard-setting organisation does not look at the declaration, look at the patent and say, yes, we think that is essential, no, we think it's not. It is a self-declaration system. And a lot of patents are declared essential, which actually, at the end of the day, prove not to be essential in reality. Now, there's reasons for this. There's good reasons and bad reasons. Companies may genuinely have put in a declaration thinking that their patent would be essential. And then in the course of prosecution, the claims change or get narrowed to such an extent in order to get the patent through based on prior art that it's no longer essential. Or it may have been a proposal that was not actually taken up Etc. So there have been some studies done where the number of patents which are actually essential is a, quite a small proportion of the numbers that have been declared. I've seen studies uh, talk about as few as 15%. So that's one of the problems that you've got here. The other problem is that, again, um, it's been promulgated that one should grade patents, even when they are essential. Are they small innovations or are they large innovations? The problem is it's very difficult to determine empirically what is a big innovation and what is a small innovation because a lot of these things develop by relatively small innovations which combine together make a big one and therefore which you decide is the most important patent. And the third thing is that there's no overall consensus um, as to what should be the royalty stack for cellular connectivity now one of the big arguments and it will come up in the uh, apple and optus case i'll talk about the specifics in this context because it's interesting is that apple will say that their handsets sell for a much higher price than the majority and that's a fact i mean apple's average selling price is north of 700 dollars the worldwide industry average for a smartphone is somewhere between 200 and $250. And Apple will say that the reason that their products command a premium is because of the, the design, the brand, 
the innovation, certain features in their handsets, which have nothing to do with in, uh, cellular connectivity. My side would say that actually that is a bit too simplistic because you can make this wonderful uh, device, which has a nice camera in it and is a nice design and got a good brand name. But if you weren't to connect it to the cellular network, people wouldn't really buy it because all it would be was a handheld computer. And it does some whizzy things. But actually what people want to be able to do is to walk down the street whilst tapping away or talking on their handset or sending photographs or what have you. Um, and they want to do that by cellular con connectivity. So there is no consensus as to what should be the royalty stack on a handheld device. And that is one of the problems. So all these arguments are left open to things like the Fran trial. Now, if we had an arbitration system, assuming, of course, that the arbitration panel was allowed to publish their results afterwards, you would start to get some form of consensus. And then people would say, well, they draw analogies with other cases and say, well, in that case, we don't need to really go to arbitration, can we? We've got the parameters and let's try and agree something within those. OK, two broad questions to bring the interview to a close. And the first one, to some extent, you've answered this already, but let me ask you it again. What do you hope will result from the government review? What do I hope will result from the government review? It would be good for both sides of the industry, I think, if some form of push towards some independent determination of uh, FRAND in particular contexts, i.e. by particular contexts, I mean if I have a portfolio and I'm talking to such and such a licensee, it'd be good if the parties could not agree if there were some form of independent uh, assessment of that which was binding on the parties. That would cut out a lot of the litigation which is going on at the moment. OK, that's what you hope will result uh, from the review. What do you expect will come of it? I don't know what to expect. I know what I fear. I fear that um, the, the implementer um, side, the Fair Standard Alliance view of the world, will potentially prevail. And one of the things that the Fair Standard Alliance would say is, for example that it should no longer be possible to get injunctions um, in respect of SEPs. Now, what that would amount to, frankly, would be a licence to infringe um, at, at your will. Of course, if you had binding arbitration, then you could be sure that you would get your royalty, sorry, the SEP holder could be sure that they would get their royalty. And then in that instance, maybe... Injunction shouldn't be granted if the implementer was committed to take the licence that was determined by the independent arbitration panel. Absent that, it just becomes an infringer's charter. It's a funny thing, Joshua, I'm going to say this. In my experience, I spent the last nine years litigating SEPs and what have you. And... Every defendant we've ever come across has always professed to be a willing licensee. But it's amazing 
I've never come across an unwilling licensee uh, <laughs> or somebody who professed to be an unwilling licensee. They always profess to be willing. But we've had to spend a lot of litigation trying to get them to the point where they take licenses. Gary Moss, Head of Litigation at EIP, thank you very much indeed. And that brings us to the end of this episode of EIP Talks, presented by me, Joshua Rosenberg. EIP Talks will be back with another edition soon. To make sure you don't miss the next episode, you can subscribe to EIP Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or SoundCloud. And for more patent updates, you can follow EIP on LinkedIn and Twitter. Thank you for listening.